Hallelujah. There we go. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start this morning teaching on the book of Acts. The Bible tells us that in the last days we should pray for the rain, the early and the latter rain. And the things that are identified in the uh, early chapters of the book of Acts, but really all the way through, is an example of what the early rain is and looks like. And if we know what the early rain looks like, then we can know what to expect for the latter rain. Now, the book of Acts was written by Luke. Luke was a, a part of Paul's company. He was a faithful fellow minister. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, Paul writing to Timothy at the end of his life, this is the last letter that he wrote, and he is expecting to be put to death very soon. He wrote to Timothy, he said, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. This is 2 Timothy 4, verse 9. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed unto Thessalonica. Crescens to Galatia, and Titus unto Dalmatia. So it sounds like these three guys forsook Paul at the last of his life and went back into the world. Verse 11 says, Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Now, I want you to look with me to Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Luke is writing about the events that took place in Paul's ministry. In verse 6, it says, Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, folks, I want you to notice something here. Luke is writing to Theophilus, and we'll talk about him in a minute. He's writing to identify the things that were taking place in Paul's company and in Paul's ministry. But notice that things change. We've just reread, we'll reread them real quickly or point them out. Acts 16, verse 6, now when they had gone throughout Phrygia. Verse 7, after they were come to Mysia. Verse 8, and they passing by Mysia came down to Troas. Then it tells us about the vision that Paul had. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. Notice verse 10, and after he had seen the vision... Immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. It continues in verse 11, therefore loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to someplace. Luke goes from being an observer or really a storyteller about the things that were taking place 
in Paul's ministry to include himself. Now, what happened there, we're not real sure. We don't know if he caught up with them there, if he had just appeared and, and started working with them as a ministry aide. We don't know for sure. But we do know that from this point in Acts chapter 16 all the way to the end of the, of the book, Luke is a present observer, participant. He's part of the company that he's writing about. Now, we know that Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul identifies Luke as the beloved physician. That must have been his training in some way or another. But we don't know anything about him from that point forward or anything really else about him other than that. Now, he also wrote, Luke also wrote the gospel that uh, bears his name. So I'm going to go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 1, and talk a little bit about what's going on here and setting some background for the things that we want to see in the book of Acts. This letter, the gospel of Luke, was written to a man named Theophilus. Now, the name Theophilus means lover of God, loved by God, and friend of God. Now, nobody is born with names like this, and it's certainly a Greek influence upon the uh, society of the day where Theophilus is through his actions, the way that he's living his life, He's come to a place where he is identified as loved of God and a lover of God. And he's spoken of by the title, Most Excellent Theophilus, in chapter 1 of Luke, which indicates that he must be some type of ruler or magistrate. Now, he could be somebody that was born again, or was saved through the ministry of others. And it, it could be that he could be an influence on the Roman government regarding Paul's trial. Or it could just be that Luke is writing to this influential man to identify the things in the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, and then also through Paul during the book of Acts. So let me start in verse 1 of Luke. Luke 1, 1, for as, many as, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed, believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Now, notice what Luke is talking about here. Luke identifies that in the days that these things were written, the Gospel of Luke was written somewhere around 60 A.D. The book of Acts was written somewhere 61, 62 A.D. And Luke is identifying the things that are taking place in the culture and in the world around them. The gospel is being preached. The gospel is spreading. The gospel has already reached Rome at this time that Luke is writing. But notice 
what's taking place. He's saying that many, I don't know how many he is, but it's more than a few. He's saying that many are writing down things about Jesus and his ministry and about the early days of the church. Notice what he says, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order, notice that phrase, to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. They're trying to create a paper declaration, a parchment declaration, I guess we should say, about the order of things. In other words, Luke is saying, I'm not just telling, telling you or providing for you information, but this is the chronological order that it took place in. Now, the reason that's significant, we just read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse, uh, starting in verse 9, about verse 11, I guess it was, only Luke is with me. And then he tells Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, bring Mark with you. For he is profitable unto me in the ministry. Mark, or John Mark, as he's otherwise known, was a nephew of either Barnabas or Peter. We're not sure exactly which one it was. The, uh, the historical record is unclear, but we know that he was in the inner circle. And in that inner circle, he was part of Paul and Barnabas' um, first missionary journey. In Ch Acts chapter 13, it tells us that he left them. After the first couple of events that took place, he witnessed some uh, astonishing things. You may remember that there was a, uh, a man, a sorcerer, that was trying to keep somebody from believing the things that Paul was speaking to them. And Paul, inspired by the Holy Ghost, commanded that a, bit, a mist of blindness or darkness would be upon the guy. And that was certainly a spectacular occurrence taken by God to prove that God is the God most high. John Mark saw these things, but apparently the difficulty of the travel whether it's the opposition that they're running into, which up to that point really isn't extensive. But at any rate, John Mark decides to go back to Jerusalem. And it becomes such a point of contention that on the second missionary journey, when they were getting ready to go to the second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, it tells us that Barnabas and Paul fell out over it. Paul was so adamant about not taking somebody that had turned back during the first journey, that Paul and Barnabas split up. Paul took Silas, and Barnabas took John Mark, and they went different directions. Now, that was a ministry relationship that was set forth and, and created by God himself. You may remember in Acts chapter 13, where it tells us that in Antioch there were a group of five prophets and or teachers, which means they were either a teacher or a prophet or a prophet and a teacher. And it says that two of those are Barnabas and, and Saul. And the Holy Ghost spoke and said, Set, uh, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I've called them. 
this must have been a very serious issue for Paul to, to stand up for or stand against John Mark being associated with him on the next the second journey. I'm not really sure whose side to take in this issue. But one thing that we do see is that John Mark developed into a um, faithful minister that Paul said was profitable for him. Well, Paul certainly didn't do anything to make him a faithful minister. Paul certainly didn't do anything to train him or equip him to get to the place that he was. That was all Barnabas doing. And Mark is the, the author of the gospel that bears his name as well. Now, the gospel of Mark is different from any of the others. We know that uh, from church historical records that Matthew and Mark were the first two gospel accounts that were written. Now, Mark's account is a little different than the others because the chronological, chronological order is skewed or different from any of the other gospel writers. So when Luke is talking about setting in order, he's talking about putting things back into the chronological order in the way that they happen. Now Luke was most probably not part of Jesus' ministry before his crucifixion. And so he had to have a source to provide the information that he sets forth in his gospel. And his source was most probably Mark. One of the things about Mark that rankled Paul, it would seem, is that Mark was too Jewish for Paul's liking. And Paul's message of the gospel of Jesus in that he preached that the law of Moses was fulfilled and so there was no need to uh, keep the law of Moses. That became a difficulty for Paul because of Mark's relationship with some of the original apostles and so forth. Mark basically relates the things that Peter was preaching throughout his ministry. As such, the gospel of Mark is of great value to us because it's not just Mark as an eyewitness or an observer of these things, but more than that, he's the one that tells us about what Peter is preaching. And as such, you know that how impulsive Peter was when Jesus was here on the earth. And as a result, some of the things that he preaches may be out of order chronologically or set forth in a different order than what we know of through Matthew and Luke and then John to some extent as well. So Luke is going to set forth things in order. Up until that point in time, there was little, if any, historical record to, to go from and to go by. So he says, For as much as many have taken hand in hand to set forth in order 
a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Now notice, Paul, uh, notice Luke is identifying himself as an eyewitness and a minister of the word from the beginning. Now there's only a couple of things that that could mean in the beginning or the beginning that he's talking about. If he's talking about in Jesus' ministry, then that would make Luke one of the 70. If he's talking about uh, the beginning being the church when the Holy Ghost was poured out, then that would mean he could have been one of the 120 in the upper room. We don't know for sure which one it is, but it must be one of those because of the way he identifies himself. Even as they delivered them, meaning the gospel accounts unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also. It, apparently he's being led by the Holy Ghost to provide and produce the ministry or the gospel that we know of as Luke. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. Again, he's trying to bring order to some of the misunderstandings or disagreements, perhaps, in the church about the doctrine of Christ for this purpose that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So we know that Theophilus has been instructed. We know therefore that Theophilus is uh, most probably a Christian at the time of Luke's writing the gospel that bears his name and then also the book of Acts. So now let's go to Acts chapter 1. Verse 1, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days thence. When therefore they were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They're still looking for a, a political Messiah, a political Savior even after having been with Jesus. And if you look at the, the end of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, at the end of the chapter, it talks about the ascension of Jesus. So there's the overlap to provide continuity between the two works, the two letters of Luke. Jesus answered them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, he went up, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Israel, or you men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go to heaven. In other words, these two angels are saying this shouldn't be a rare occasion or something for us to just wonder and be astonished at the entrance into heaven and the interaction between heaven and earth should be a common occurrence. Now, folks, when did that change? When did it become so rare and almost non-existent by some perspectives that we could not see or interact any longer with God or with other heavenly beings as these angels were. First thing I want you to see about the book of Acts is it was based on the power of the Holy Ghost. In both Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1, it reiterates Jesus telling the disciples to stay or wait or tarry in Jerusalem for a specific purpose, and that was to receive power from on high. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Jesus, as I've made statements before, I love how John Osteen used to describe this. He said, don't even think about having church without the Holy Ghost. I love that. And it creates a dependency on our part to the Holy Ghost for anything and everything that we do. So it talks about Matthias chosen to replace Judas and take his place as one of the apostles of the Lamb. Then in Acts chapter 2, it tells us about the coming of the Holy Spirit that they've been waiting for. Verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there's a couple of things I want you to see about this. And remember the, the Bible is really not a Western book. We interpret things in our Western culture and experience. But it's really an Eastern book. And as such, the significance of the fire that sat upon them was such that goes back to the Jewish history and things that occurred in the law of Moses. It used to be, back in Bible days, a commonplace thing for the Jews to put their sacrifice on the altar. And that sacrifice on the altar was signified as worthy 
by fire falling out of heaven and consuming the sacrifice. That was commonplace with the Jews. So when the Holy Ghost falls on the 120 in the upper room and these cloven tongues of fire fall on them and sit upon each one of them, it's a sign to each of the ones that were involved that the sacrifice is no longer bulls and goats. The sacrifice is the life of the human being. Now, folks, whether you realize it or not, if we understand those things, if we start gaining a glimpse of the fact that our righteousness, which was purchased by Jesus himself, separates us unto God in such a way as to make us worthy of anything and everything offered unto God, and then understand the power that is given to us and that belongs to us and that is a part of us, then it would change the way we would expect God to interact with his church. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation in heaven, under heaven, those that had come to Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia, in Pontus, in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya around Cyrene, the strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Creeks and... Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. So not only are these people speaking in tongues, they're speaking in different tongues, tongues known unto men, not known unto the, the ones that were doing the speaking, certainly. But these people that have come to Jerusalem are hearing them speak in their own languages. Now, folks, there's two ways that you could look at this. Either take it at face value that the 120, when they spill out into the streets, are speaking these other known languages as they seem to be identified as doing through the, the words that we just read. Or it could be that they're speaking in tongues, but the miracle is not through the tongues that they're speaking, but in the fact that the hearers hear these languages rather than hear a heavenly language that we know of as tongues. Now, which one is it? Well, I don't really know for sure, but I do know this. 
I do know that the church has for years, hundreds of years, maybe a couple of thousands of years, approaching that at least, have thought that speaking with tongues is not necessary anymore because we can learn these languages of the world. In other words, the idea, accepting the idea that these people are speaking in these languages rather than speaking a heavenly language as we expect from other scriptures about these things in the, in the Bible have caused many to discount the supernatural nature of speaking in tongues. Now, it's possible that these people just spoke in these languages this one time. And then from that point forward, they spoke in heavenly languages. We don't know. It's certainly possible, but we don't know if that's the case or not. But one thing that we do know is the Bible talks about speaking in tongues as speaking heavenly languages. Language is not known to man. So this could be, just be a one-off situation. Or it's possible that the miracle was not taking place in the languages that they were speaking. But that the miracle was in the hearers, the ear of the hearers. Either way you want to approach this, doesn't really matter to me, but I, I would suggest to you that you take a position to recognize and accept the supernatural nature of the tongues that were given an utterance to speak. So the people were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, you men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken you to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Folks, I can't hardly read over this without making a comment on verse 15. These are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Peter speaks to the 120 and the supernatural things that are taking place. And he disproves their idea or their supposition that the men are drunk, not because of any righteous character of their nature, but because it's the wrong time of day. He says it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. These people aren't drunk yet because it's not time. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in these, those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. 
And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now part of the things that Peter is preaching and talks about concerning the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh, as Joel prophesied, but one of the things that he identifies are things that happen at the last day of the tribulation period where the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood and the great notable day of the Lord come. That day that he's talking about is not the rapture. That day he's talking about is when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation period and establishes his millennial reign on the earth and exercises judgment upon mankind. He goes on, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave thy soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, Thou hast made me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended unto the heavens, but he said himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes the footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God has made that same Jesus whom thou hast crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation, that they gladly received his, that then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, folks, I don't mean this to come across as a criticism, but if the things that are written down by Luke in Acts chapter 2 was the entirety of Peter's sermon, I would remark to you that the most important thing about what's being said 
is this being said in the power of the Holy Ghost. It's not a real ringing, go get them evangelistic message. But he's speaking words given by the Holy Ghost in the power of the Holy Ghost. And it brings 3,000 people into the family of God. I've heard better sermons, maybe not better information, but I think we could probably all say that that might not be the best sermon ever preached. But that which is done in the power of the Holy Ghost, according to his leading, can and will always produce supernatural results. And that's exactly what happens here. Then it tells us what the people did after they entered into the kingdom of God. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Remember, we're reading the book of Acts looking for the rain. The rain of the Holy Ghost, the early rain of the Holy Ghost shows us the power that being filled with the Holy Ghost brings into our lives. And the power and the effectiveness of the operations of the church when we have things in proper order. I believe that the story related to us in Acts chapter 2 is to convince us, inform us, and convince us that the work of man spurred on or inspired by the direction of the Holy Spirit and done with his help and his aid produces supernatural and even spectacular results. Remember Jesus at Caesarea Philippi asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter answered and said, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Think about what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Peter, you're not convinced I'm the Messiah because of the miracles that I've produced. And up until that point in time, Peter had produced a lot of miracles, or we, perhaps we should say God had produced a lot of miracles through the actions of Peter as well. 
Peter's laid hands on the sick and seen them healed. He's walked on the water, at least taken a few steps before he began to doubt and then began to sink. And the supernatural things that he has done are not the cause of him believing that Jesus is the Christ. The reason that he believes that is because the Father has opened his heart to accept it to be true. Jesus goes on to say, upon this rock I shall build my church. The rock that he's talking about is not Peter, thank God. The rock that he's talking about is the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. He said, upon this church, I will, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, folks, most Christians seem to have the idea, the mental image, that we're trying to stand our ground and withstand the forward progress of the devil. But Jesus said it was just the other way around. He's saying the church made up of believers who have committed themselves to the Lord by accepting Jesus as the Messiah, accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He's indicating that that church is on the move and that the gates of hell are trying to withstand the church but they will be unsuccessful in their endeavors. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he tells them, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be loosed in heaven, or whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. What's he talking about? He's talking about power. He's talking about supernatural power to break through the gates of hell. To break through those things that bind and hold believers, Christians, men and women who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. To break those bonds that hold them bound. Then we see something else as Luke is identifying. Here's what the church with power sounds like, and 3,000 people got saved. But there was a, a continuity and a consistency that took place. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Many wonders and signs. Like what? Like how many? Luke leaves that to our imagination. 
but he identifies that the power of God is ongoing and it produces results in any number of ways. And all that believed together were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Folks, God is not a communist. And he's not establishing communism as some social order to be followed. You remember the Bible tells us again and again that we'll be rewarded in heaven for our works. That's not communism. That's rewards based on merit. Well, then why is this in there? Why is this identified in the Scripture as it is? Well, folks, remember that in 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed, taken apart, brick by brick. This is being written eight years or so before that takes place. But it could be that in God's economy, he's prompting or inspiring by the Holy Ghost people to turn loose of or to sell or to liquidate certain hard assets that they're going to lose when the Romans destroy the temple and take away their properties and besiege their cities. Now, I can't claim that that would be the only reason or more than just a, a consideration, frankly. But maybe it would do us good to look past ju not just the words that the Bible uses about that, but to recognize that there was a change in people's hearts. To recognize perhaps that when the rain falls, people's hearts are turned toward others rather than just for themselves. Maybe it would serve us well or better to recognize that when the Word of God is preached and in the last days when the rain begins to fall, there is a, a greater capacity to believe God, to trust in his word, to operate in faith, relying on God to provide for us and not just the money that we're used to coming in as a paycheck. Verse 46, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So far we see the rain bringing about an outpouring of the Spirit of God to produce power for the church to operate, the early church to operate. 
And then we see a spiritual hunger among the people that requires of them to continue daily in the doctrine of the apostles. The power of God continues in these signs and wonders that are done by the apostles, although we don't know what they are. But they must have been significant enough for Luke to include them in his writing. And we see the hearts of the people turn back toward their brothers and sisters. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And certain men, a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them which, that entered into the temple. Who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asked an alms. And Peter fastening his eyes on him with John said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his, his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered in with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Now we know the end result of this, and we'll talk about it and read some more about this story as it goes. But let me ask you a question. What brought about the healing of this crippled man? Well, the easy answer is the healing power of God. But let me ask you this. Were Peter and John inclined to do anything toward this man or for this man before the man asked for an alms, asked for a handout, asked for an offering? Would Peter and John have just walked by him if he hadn't asked something of them? Peter's response is, Silver and gold have I none, such as I have give I thee. Peter knew what he had, but what generated or what prompted what he had to be given at that point in time? The Bible says this man is laid daily at the gate of the temple. Well, it's just been a couple of months before that Jesus went into that temple. And I could certainly say with some degree of certainty that sometime throughout Jesus' time in Jerusalem, he probably walked by this guy. Now, folks, God never changes. His will never changes. We see from the results that take place in this man's healing that God wants him well. But I wonder how many times Peter and John have walked by him without anything being done for him. I wonder how many times Jesus has walked by this guy without doing anything for him. Why now? Why on this particular day did this great work take place? 
Did it have anything to do with the man asking something of Peter and John? We don't have any scriptural reference that says that it did. Let's look at it from another direction. Peter and John are going to their daily time of prayer in the temple. The fact that they're going in through this beautiful gate on this particular day in Acts chapter 3 might indicate that it's their normal route into the temple. So should we say that nothing being done on any other day, any prior day or previous time by either Peter and John or some of the other disciples or maybe Jesus, even Jesus himself, does that mean the power of God was not available? I certainly don't believe that. We see that signs and wonders are being done earlier in chapter, uh, toward the end of chapter 2 before this day in Acts 3 takes place. Many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. I wonder if there were any healings in those signs and wonders. Folks, these are things that we can't provide hard and fast answers to or for. But it's important for us to think in these terms to recognize that just because something hadn't happened at a point in time that we think that it should doesn't discount the power and the nature of God. So Peter and John get this guy healed. Verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, get this picture. He's been healed, but he's not about to turn these guys loose. As the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? So much of the church world thinks that the apostles had special power because of the time that they spent with Jesus and because of the office that they carried, that that office had power, miracle-working power that we don't have anymore. Well, if Peter had some special holiness that we don't have that provided him the ability to heal this man or to heal other, others, don't you think he would know it? Or if the apostles had some special power in and of themselves because they're apostles, then don't you think they would know it? But those are the two specific things that they identify had nothing to do with this man being healed. I don't know why the church overlooks this. But those that believe the power of God is done away with because of the 
apostles only had it. And when the last apostle died, that was the end. How do they satisfy their doctrine with what Peter said? Why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and delivered and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, which you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Here now we see for the first time in the book of Acts the name of Jesus being used and the place that the name of Jesus has in producing Holy Ghost miracles. Luke is relating as a part of the, the doctrine of setting in order how things occurred, what things occurred and when. Luke is identifying that the power is not in the apostles. And folks, by somewhere around when this was written, 62, 63 A.D., perhaps, somewhere like that. There was almost hero worship taking place among the Gentiles toward Paul and among the Jews toward Peter. But, Peter, but Luke identifies that the power is in the name of Jesus. Peter doesn't say that there's some manifestation of the Holy Ghost that's special to him, which there could be. If you take a survey of all the things that the book of Acts tells us about Peter's ministry and the people that were healed and the signs and wonders that are done by him, it almost seems that he has a gift of faith, special faith toward people that are lame or crippled. It could also be that he has a gift of faith where the raising of the dead was concerned because he had a couple of those situations in, identified in the book of Acts 2. But even if that were the case, it doesn't operate indiscriminately according to Peter's will. It's still something that manifests by the will of the, of the Holy Ghost and not the will of man. And folks, that's always going to be the case. God shares his power with his people, but not his glory. So these things happen, possibly by manifestation of the Spirit, possibly because of certain spiritual gifts 
or endowments of power that the apostles had. But as far as Peter is concerned, it all comes back to the name of Jesus and faith in that name. Now in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Where's their concern for the guy that was healed? Their only concern is that the Peter and John are preaching resurrection and the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. That's their only concern. And so they called them and brought them before the Sanhedrin the next day. Verse 4 tells us that the number of the people that were saved by the man's healing in chapter 3 were 5,000. Now, folks, in just a short period of time, I don't know how short, short is in this case, but in a relatively short period of time, the church is well over 10,000 people. You had 3,000 people saved on the day of Pentecost. You had 120 already there in the upper room. You got 5,000 people that are saved by the man being healed in Acts chapter 3. That's 8,120. Plus you've got the women that were added to the church that were part of the, the 3,000 male crowd and the 5,000 male crowd. So I think a short estimate would be 10,000 plus people in just a matter of months. Folks, when the Holy Ghost starts to move, it doesn't take a long time to reach people. Now, we could establish church programs and work ourselves to death generation after generation after generation. But God's got a better plan than that. So it tells us the high priest in Acts chapter 4, verse 6, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we be this day examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. Now, folks, do you remember before Jesus appeared to the disciples or when he did appear to the disciples, it says they were behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. What Jews were they afraid of? The very ones they're talking to here in Acts chapter 4. The ones that had the authority to put them to death with Roman consent just as they put Jesus to death. Look at the change that's taking place in the apostles in just a short matter of, well, at least a month. Actually, I guess we should say at least, at the minimum, a month and a half. 
and it could be longer than that, but we really don't have any way to know. But we see a change, at least in Peter and John, that's a life-changing change, a life-producing change. He's flat out accusing the Sanhedrin of killing the Messiah. He speaks of the name of Jesus containing salvation. Verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other name. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed, Standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they commanded them to go aside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed a notable miracle has been done by them, is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So at one time, God's will was for notable miracles to take place. If only God didn't change. But remember, God says, I am God, I change not. The early rain contained notable miracles. I wonder what the latter rain is to contain. I've had some people say, yeah, but that was the early rain, and they needed the early rain to get established. The Bible says that we should pray for the latter rain. But folks, rain is rain. The early rain versus the latter rain is just a matter of timing, not a change in substance. So if God wanted notable miracles in the early days of the church, to prove that he came. I wonder if he wants notable miracles in the latter days of the church to show that he's coming back. So they threaten Peter and John and tell them not to more, tell them no longer to preach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, verse 19, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge you. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing in how they might punish them. For the man was above 40 years old, upon whom this miracle of healing was showed. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and with the people of Israel were gathered together, for to do whatsoever their hand and yet thy counsel determined before to be done, 
And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. By stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they all spake the word of God with boldness. So what do we see? We see that the reign of God consists of notable miracles. We see that the reign of God answers prayer. We see that the reign of God provides a defense from governmental authorities to perform the works of Jesus. Now there's a lot of other stuff in the book of Acts that we could talk about and we may revisit at some other time. But folks, God has a, a tremendous and a specific plan in these last days for his church to sweep in millions of people into the kingdom of God. And I believe with all my heart that we're going to see multitudes swept in by the thousands, just as the book of Acts tells us that it happened and occurred in the early days of the church. I believe God's looking for us to step out so that he can do some things that can't be done in the four walls of the church. All of these things that took place took place in the marketplace, took place in the open temple. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. We thank you for giving us a picture of what the rain looks like. So, Father, we pray the prayer of the apostles, the prayer of the early church, that you would grant unto us boldness to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders might be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Lord, we don't ask that you shake the place where we're in. We ask that you shake us. Lead us by your spirit. Prompt us by the Holy Ghost that we might do the works of Jesus and do our part in these last days. We ask you for the rain, Lord. You told us to ask of the rain in the time of the latter rain and that you would produce bright clouds or lightnings. You would manifest your presence and you would display your power and give us showers of rain, manifestations of the Holy Ghost, 
and bring forth the precious fruit of the earth. Send the rain, Lord. Send the rain. Send the rain, Lord. Send the rain. In Jesus' name. Say this with me. The Lord is sending the rain. Amen. Amen. God bless you, folks.